Hi, I'm Douglas Haynes, your Monday host of A Public Affair. We love creating this public space for in-depth conversations about education, ecology, food, and so much more. To keep these conversations going, we need your support. Go to wortfm.org slash donate. Thank you. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency. Welcome to A Public Affair. I'm your Monday host, Douglas Haynes. As wildfire smoke again smudges Wisconsin skies and high temperature records fall across the globe, it's hard to escape the thought that the physical world we once knew is inalterably changed. One of my guests today, Paul Bogard, wrote in the New York Times last month, we're watching the sky as we know it disappear. How do we engage with the sometimes overwhelming emotions many of us feel about the losses of the climate and extinction crises? How do we talk about how we feel about changes to earth and sky, to family, friends, and neighbors? How can we use our emotions to engage in struggling for a more stable climate and creating hope for lives to come? A new collection of personal essays from some of America's foremost writers on these questions offers a suite of diverse, intimate, and moving answers from around the country. The book is called Solastalgia, an anthology of emotion in a disappearing world. I'm delighted to be joined today by the book's editor, Paul Bogard, and two contributors to the book, Cynthia Belmont and Leah Naomi Green. I should add that I also contributed an essay set here in Madison to this collection. And we're going to hear from all of our guests today, reading from their work and talking about this theme of solastalgia and the diverse responses to that idea in this book. But let me first introduce my guests more in depth. Cynthia Belmont is professor of English at Northland College and a nonfiction writer and poet. Her work has appeared in Salon, River Teeth, Terrain, and many other publications. Welcome to A Public Affair, Cynthia. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be participating. And Paul Bogard is Associate Professor of English at Hamlin University and the author of The End of Night, Searching for Natural Darkness in an Age of Artificial Light. Last month, his essay, We're Watching the Sky as We Know It Disappeared, Disappear, appeared in the New York Times. Welcome, Paul. Hi, Douglas. Great to be here. It's great to have you with us. And Leah Naomi Green is the author of The More Extravagant Feast, winner of the Walt Whitman Award of the Academy of American Poets. She teaches English and environmental studies at Washington and Lee University. Welcome, Leah. We're so glad to have you with us. It's wonderful to see you all. And welcome, listeners. We'd love for you to join our conversation today. If you have a question for my guests about living and writing in a time of ecological crisis or an experience or feeling you'd like to share, please do give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. I know a lot of you are thinking about those smoky skies we've had lately here in the upper Midwest and uh, things that people are experiencing all around the world right now in terms of heat, floods, Etc. So um, please do let us know your feelings and experiences. This conversation today is all about the importance of those feelings and experiences. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at WRT Talk or message a public affair on Facebook. So Paul Bogard, as the editor of this new book, Solastalgia, we're going to start with you today. And of course, uh, many of us are wondering about that title word. What does solastalgia mean and where does it come from, this word? 
Yeah, Solastalgia uh, comes from Australia, actually. It uh, was coined by a guy named Glenn Albrecht about 20 years ago. He's an environmental philosopher. Uh, and it, was, it stemmed from uh, his experience in New South Wales of his neighbors uh, feeling grief over what they were seeing happening to the landscape around them, especially from the, these enormous open pit coal mines uh, in that area. And Albrecht realized that, uh, you know, he knew that this feeling of grief over change to the natural world was something that was probably ancient, an ancient feeling. Um, but he couldn't find a word in the English language that really uh, described what he was hearing. And so he came up with this word solastalgia. And it, it's similar to nostalgia, you know, missing a place or a time in the past. But it refers to this feeling we're having, so many of us, of seeing the changes around us in present time. We haven't gone anywhere, but the place that we've known has essentially gone or is leaving. And uh, it's kind of funny, uh, Albrecht actually, you know, if you ask him, how would you define it? He'll give any kind of a, an array of answers that are all related. Um, I could I could cite three or four different ways he says it, but one of the my favorite uh, shorthand responses, definitions is just the homesickness we feel while we're still at home. Um, and I think that goes far in uh, kind of describing this emotion that so many of us are are experiencing. So why this word, Solastalgia, for the title of this new book? What were you hoping the book will capture? Yeah, I mean, I think for me, and I think for a lot of people all over the world, really, this word have, is kind of immediately evocative. Um, as Albrecht says, when he discovered it, when he, he thought of it, it kind of rolls off the tongue. And that's been my experience as well. Uh, and it speaks to me right away. Um, Cynthia and I were just in a conference last week where some people took issue with the word and said it didn't work for them. And they wanted something, I don't know, Cynthia can speak to this too, but, you know, harsher or more dramatic or something like that. And, you know, to each his own, I think for me, this word is really evocative and speaks to the to the feeling, the emotion that um, that I certainly have have had the the root of the word, the sola, comes from the same root as the word solace and, and, and speaks to another of Albrecht's definitions, which is essentially that we're, it's this, this uh, grieving or more the pain, right? The nostalgia of losing the solace that we have always taken from uh, our surroundings, from the, the regular uh, constant weather, uh, the, the climate, uh, the birds, the animals, the things that we're just used to seen around us that give us solace, even if we've never thought about it that way. Um, when we start to notice those things changing and we start to lose those things, we realize what what we're losing. So that's the, the intellectual and emotional basis for this new book. In your introduction, Paul, you talk about your goals, what you want the book to do in the world and how you reached out to really a huge number of authors to create this. What were your goals for the book? Or what are they as the book now is, is out in the world? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, in the introduction, I, I, I cite three. The first is to raise awareness of the impact on our emotions. Just the fact that, you know, what is happening to the world around us is impacting us, many of us, um, emotionally, right? Uh, there, there's grief, there's, uh, there's anger, and some people wrote to that, uh, rage, that kind of thing. Um, but I think it impacts our, our emotions in all sorts of different ways. Um, 
the next my other goal is to argue that um, it's really important that we engage with these emotions that, you know, that um, I think um, and I, from my years of dealing with this, that we have a, a tendency in American culture to want to skip past emotions and get to work kind of thing. Right. Um, I've had that reaction over the years of people saying, like, what good does it do to feel sad about something like what can we you know, tell me what I can do? And I I don't think it's an either or thing. I think those things go together and that our emotions of, of grief or, or rage or whatever are, are inspirational and motivational and provide the fuel we need. Um, and then the third goal was just to um, create a book uh, that uh, let people know that if they are feeling this way, um, they're not alone. And I think that speaks to uh, one of the epigraphs of the book is Aldo Leopold's passage about um, living alone in a world of wounds, you know, when you see things that other people don't see. And I think I really feel this is true. Um, so many of us are feeling these emotions and, and, and feeling alone in that because, um, you know, people don't talk about it with us. Um, we don't hear it in the news. It just seems like people want to act as if nothing is changing or, you know, if it's smoky today, it won't be smoky tomorrow. So everything will be back to normal kind of thing. Um, and I, I just want to say that if you're feeling this way, you are not alone. And, and this book is full of people writing really beautifully. And I, we're so lucky to have Leah and Cynthia with us today to share their pieces, just writing and, and Douglas, you as well. I mean, writing really beautifully about um, uh, how we're feeling and what we're experiencing. Let's turn to um, one of us uh, to talk about our contribution to the book. Let me first of all reintroduce you all, though. You're listening to A Public Affair on WRT 89.9 FM. I'm Douglas Haynes, and I'm talking today with writers Paul Bogard, Cynthia Belmont, and Leah Naomi Green about the new book, Solastalgia, an anthology of emotion in a disappearing world. If you have a question for my guests about living and writing in a time of ecological crisis or want to share an experience or feeling of your own, please do give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. So, Cynthia, you live in the north woods of Wisconsin, and your contribution to the book is very rooted there. Tell us about what you thought about when Paul asked you to write about Solastalgia. Well, it was a perfect fit because I had been thinking about the white-throated sparrow. It was right around that time that I had learned that there was um, a prediction that the white-throated sparrow will not be uh, living in the United States anymore in a matter of 25 years. And um, I was just so struck by that because this sparrow is such a meaningful part of the sounds of the woods where I live. I love its call. And um so it was just very easy for me to write this piece. It, it just seemed that um, I was able to translate the idea of sort of a feeling of grief for something that hasn't even been lost yet into this bird call. Yeah, you're. So, and Paul and I. Oh, sorry. Oh, I was just going to say you're you're lucky there to have the white-throated sparrow with you uh, yeah. all summer long up there here in Madison. We only hear the white-throated sparrow singing for a couple of weeks while while the bird passes through. But yeah, tell us more about you. You call it the Whistler of the North. The Whistler of the North. Yes. And we have them all around us. I heard it this morning. We had one nesting near our porch um, this summer. So the call is very loud. We are very lucky to have to have them here. Um, and I, I, yeah, I just wanted to say briefly that Paul and I had talked about Solastalgia a lot as he was thinking about putting this book together. And it 
just struck me as such a necessary and important concept. I don't think that this word is captured by any other, that the meaning of this word is captured by any other words that we have. So for instance, at that panel, Paul was talking about, uh, somebody suggested, well, why don't we just talk, why don't we just call it eco-anxiety? We already have that word, you know, or, or um, climate anxiety, but anxiety is a little bit different from the feeling of solastalgia. I think they're related, but the feeling of solastalgia may be something closer to grief than to fear, you know, there, I think the nuances are important with these, with these feelings. So when I think about the white throated sparrow, for instance, I don't necessarily go to fear so much as I go to feelings of love and grief at the thought that it will be gone. So we're going to have you read a little excerpt that captures that uh, combination of love and grief for us from your essay, Whistler of the North. Um, could you please share us, share that with us, Cynthia? Yes. So this is in the middle of the essay. Truly, as an indoor dweller, I know very little about my environment, how the organisms around me relate, what they contribute, and why. I don't even know where the animals are most of the time. I do know some of their sounds, though. Squirrels chipping, spring peepers trilling, deer crunching single file in the evening forest. I know that the white-throated sparrow, whistler of the north, has a song that sounds to some like poor Sam Peabody, 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 or oh sweet Canada, Canada, Canada. Rephrasing bird words in English is a charmingly helpful mnemonic device. But if you attend to the notes over seasons, you don't need to add anything to remember because the sheen of this glittery twinkling cadence could not be anyone else's. Audubon Society mapping shows that the white-throated sparrow's summer range is climbing due to climate change, headed steadily for the Northwest Territories and Alaska. By 2050, this bird will no longer nest in the continental United States, even this far north. It will be too hot. We will not hear this sparrow's voice again below the Canadian border. So the people up in Inuvik and Whitehorse are going to be learning something new. The sparrows, gathering and gathering, cannot plan for this. Nor can I. What would I do? How might one prepare for such an absence? I imagine it, never hearing that gone song. I picture my land as a table where we all eat together. Goodbye, sparrow. And now there's a set place and no one's seated there. How many Americans will notice their departure? But hasn't the world quieted and quieted over the past hundred years as 500 animal species have vanished? Whatever we hear or don't hear, it sounds like the woods. These are sparrows, not northern white rhinos, who have been much in the news lately since there are only two left on Earth, which, stunning fact, has led people from all over to fly thousands of miles to their compound in Kenya to witness their finitude. These tourists reportedly often cry encountering such an end. Is this the connection we need in order to stop extinction, to go where it lives and touch its quivering flesh? Thank you, Cynthia. That's writer Cynthia Belmont reading an excerpt from her essay, Whistler of the North, from the new book, Solastalgia. Beautiful. Uh, you ask a series of unsettling questions there, Cynthia, that are centered on our inattention and the power of paying attention. What's your sense of the power of paying attention? Does paying deep attention to what's being lost help prepare us? You ask, you know, can we prepare for the loss of a species, for example? 
can it move us toward action to reverse losses, do you think? I think without it, we aren't doing anything because I think that everything in our society encourages not to pay attention, encourage us not to pay attention. And um, so much of our lives is engaged in doing otherwise. And in order to pay attention, you have to carve out space from everything that is required of you, you know, as a contemporary American citizen. In other words, you almost have to, it's, it almost feels like a rebellion to me to take space, to listen to birds, to take space, to be present in your place. You know, and that's another, I think, gift of the word solastalgia is the focus on place. Like it's it's about, you know, something that gives you solace, right? That's something specific as opposed to this broad idea of eco-anxiety or climate anxiety. It's about your place. And um, so, yeah, I think the practice, it's about practice of, atten- of attention to place. Everything starts there, I think. Absolutely everything. Leah, I'm going to bring you in here. Would you like to add anything to what Cynthia just said or add any additional responses to that question about the power of paying attention or what you heard in her essay? I love everything Cynthia just said, and I love Cynthia's essay very much. It's so beautifully written. Um, Yeah, and I was. I was scribbling notes as you were talking, Cynthia, because I'm fascinated by that. And um, it helped me as you were speaking to realize that I think there is a that maybe one of the differences between something like climate anxiety and solastalgia is is mourning. Is <laughs> solastalgia is mm-hmm. for mourning? Um, M O U R N I N G mourning. And um, <laughs> and mourning is is necessary. Maybe not for all creatures, but for humans, it it seems to be necessary. And um, and it's as Paul was saying, this part that sometimes that we are tempted to skip over because we don't have time because it's painful. It's legitimately painful. Um, This morning piece is in fact, what allows us to not just see our anxiety, but to see what's in front of us. And while it's still here for one, you know, to not, to not lose it twice, (laughs) to not lose it because it's, disappearing and because we're missing it while it's here, but also to not um, to be able to act very much as Cynthia was saying, you know, like if, if all I can see is my anxiety, I can't act in any way that helps myself or any other creature. <laughs> and if I can see what is in front of me, and I think soul nostalgia makes room for that. It makes room for the morning that allows me to feel and release the, the, the loss so that I can be present with, with what I have and um, and in that have um, resilience and the ability to act. I think that's such an interesting distinction that you're making, Leah, between anxiety and mourning and the, the kind of self-reflectiveness of anxiety versus the outward-facing mourning of looking at what is being or has been lost. Uh, they are really, really different. Um, I think that's a great transition into your, your piece now, Leah. I want to make sure we have time to get to all three of you. So um, I think we'll go ahead and do that now and bring Paul back in to respond to your piece, Leah. Um, you wrote this lovely essay called Morning Songs Are Love Songs, which also begins with a deeply felt local loss where you are in Virginia, a black raspberry patch cleared by the power company. Tell us about what drew you to write about that and what you thought about when Paul asked you for an essay about soul nostalgia. Mm-hmm. 
Um, yeah, well, when Paul asked me, I thought about the black raspberries um, and this experience that I had with my children and um, the way that I was trying to model mourning for them and sort of becoming aware of my own habits around, around mourning. Um, that combined with my sort of <laughs> um, epithantic moment around the, this bumper sticker that we've all seen a million times, the one that um, is supposedly attributed to Chief Seattle, the, um, the, the earth does not belong to us, we belong to the earth. And, and the black raspberries helped me have this moment of, of realization with that bumper sticker where I was like, oh, oh, right. Like, um, this isn't an, an admonition, like this isn't um, the ghost of Chief Seattle telling me that I'm, that we're terrible. Like this is a deeper lesson than that, like belonging to something um, deeper than that, that, that lasts forever. So that's, that's my answer to your question. Yeah. So the origin is the convergence of that experience. It sounds like in this larger idea that you're um, puzzling out. Well, if you could, please go ahead and read an excerpt for us from Morning Songs, Our Love Songs, from the book Soul Nostalgia. Great. And I, I will also note that um, Douglas asked me to read this excerpt, and I realized that um, I changed it between the time it appeared right. in the <laughs> anthology and the time it appeared in Orion Magazine. But I'm gonna, I went back to the, the version of Douglas that I think you okay. think for. Yeah. <laughs> Death may be a necessary stage of life, but destruction that is more death than is helpful to life or death from which life will take a long time to emerge. For example, the excess extraction and release of carbon. Destruction is another thing. The black raspberry patch will grow back, but it will not grow back as it was. And though the earth is in no anthrop anthropogenic danger of dying, it is in the process of anthropogenic changes which will make life difficult for many species, including humans, and impossible for some. It will not grow back as it was. This may not be the kind of end point often imagined as death, but from the perspective of a human lifespan, it is great loss. And for humans, loss requires mourning. It requires me to take good care of my sadness or hurt or guilt or fear to attend to them lovingly, to try to offer, as I would through the loss of a person I love and depend on, ways to say thank you, and I'm sorry, and what can I do to help? I mourn the wood thrush, even while I hear it sing, or not the wood thrush, but the thought of the woods without its song, and the thought of my children's lives without its song. Without that song, my life would be poorer, but does that mean my children's lives will be? What is sacred to me is sacred to me. And because I am human, I will mourn when those sacred things pass. I will mourn them because I love them. I do want to model this mourning for my children. I want to show them that grief is made out of love. Mourning songs are love songs and in singing them, I can sing back to the wood thrush. I love you, I love you, I love you. I want to teach my children how to feel sacredness and love and therefore mourning. But I don't want to insist that they feel those things about the same berries and birds that I do. Once there were no black raspberries where I live and no place for them to grow. 
yet they are sacred to me. My sacredness is real, and so, therefore, is my mourning. I want to teach my children how to love and mourn because they will need to know how. Thank you. That's author, writer, Leah Naomi Green, reading from her essay, Morning Songs Are Love Songs, which appears in the new book, Soul Nostalgia, an Anthology of Emotion in a Disappearing World. You're listening to A Public Affair on WORT 89.9 FM. I'm Douglas Haynes, and I'm talking today with Leah Naomi Green and author Paul Bogard and writer Cynthia Belmont about their new book, Soul Nostalgia, or the book they contributed to. If you have a question for them about living and writing in a time of ecological crisis or an experience of feeling like the home around you is changing in ways uh, you don't know how to grapple with or that you uh, struggle to express your feelings about, please do give us a call. Share your experience, your perspective at 608 256 2001 extension 9. You can also tweet us at WRT Talk or message a public affair on Facebook. So, Leah, there's so much emotional complexity uh, in that passage that you just read. Um, I'd like to start with the idea that mourning losses in the physical world is a necessity just as mourning a lost person is emotionally necessary. That really stood out to me there. This isn't a commonplace idea in American culture. Some people might even feel like it's a little uh, outside their comfort zone, right? But the way you describe the mourning process, saying thank you, I'm sorry, what can I do to help, makes it so accessible because everybody recognizes when somebody's done that for them before, right? Can you talk about what this looks like for you in your own life, how you translate that into your experience, uh, trying to apply mourning to the physical world around you? Yeah, well, I, I um, um, as a working mother, and I have, I have a feeling that we have some listeners who are also working mothers, um, I, most of my experience with this is with my own children. Um, and, uh, and, and I know Douglas that you also write about your, your daughters and I know Paul that you write about your daughter and um, this experience of, uh, I, I mean, and I, I, I write about this at the end of the essay, but the fact that I can, my best lesson in this is looking at my own children <laughs> and realizing like I could spend all day mourning the the baby that I am no longer holding, you know, and, and missing the six-year-old or the eight-year-old in front of me. I really could. I could spend all day doing that. Um, uh, and I could sp- spend all day feeling anxious that they're going to be teenagers and then they're going to die someday <laughs> and I'm going to die someday. And the very eyes that I'm looking through are going to be gone. Like I, that's, I could, I could spend my time doing that. Um, and I, um, I suppose my practice is to not do that, is to be present with them where they are at. And um, likewise, to realize that I'm in a lineage and that there are, that the black raspberries I love are replacing something that was here that I never knew. <laughs> and I never, and I, and I show up and I think this is the way things originally were because here I am. Um, but there's all kinds of things. I mean, very much as Cynthia said in her essay, right? Like this is just what the woods sound like now. And so how to hold, um, how to be present with what is, again, I'll just say like 
enables me towards the greatest action of, of both enjoying it and therefore having the energy to protect it. Absolutely. And um, what you're saying, I think, is so important also about as you think about your children's lives into the future. It's such a key realization to realize that what I love is here and now, but it's not always what was here. And it's empowering, actually, to think about, well, my children may not have inhabit the same reality I inhabit, but there's something different that they will they will love. Right. And while that may feel very sad and hard. And it doesn't just apply, of course, to people who have children. It's anybody thinking about future generations. It's it's still, I find it empowering to think about um, attachments will still form, right, between people and the earth. But Paul, I want to bring you back in here. Does this idea resonate with you? Are there other responses to Leah's essay that you'd like to share? I have no idea what she's talking about. <laughs> um no, of course. I mean, this, uh, both Cynthia and Leah write so beautifully. And I have to say, um, I've, I've been in events with, uh, with both of them. And each time I hear their essay, uh, it, it resonates even more for me. I think that is really um, part of the beauty of this book and, and of the essays that are collected here. And I, I, I don't have any hand in that I'm talking about the the material that people sent to me is just that each time I go back to them, um, they are even richer than the time before. It's really a lot of beautiful writing. So um, yeah, gosh, you know, I think, you know, as Leah was saying there, one of the things that all four of us share is this um, experience of being a parent. And, um, you know, for three of the four of us, our, our essays are in this section um, of the book, uh, called bringing new life into a disappearing world. Um, I was going to say that the the book is organized into five sections, and each of them answers that question of what can I do, you know, how shall we respond, um, which is so important. And I think what we're talking about here, um, I loved the, what Cynthia and you all were saying about um, anxiety. I, I guess Leah was talking about anxiety. Um, and just how that's just a kind of a static can be a static existence, whereas mourning is, you know, allows us to to move forward. And um, it made me think about there was a headline in The New York Times a few years ago that I the headline to the article was to be happier, start thinking more about your own death or start thinking more about death. Right. Kind of getting at this, you know, what is, a, I think, an ancient idea of just it's it's uh contemplating our own mortality or the death of the things around us actually helps us to live more fully and, and quote unquote happier, which goes against this American, I would argue this American feeling of like, you know, if I want to be happy, I can't think about that stuff, right? I can't think about, you know, all the bad stuff that's happening or that we're, we're going to die or that, you know, it's like, that is completely, completely bonkers, at least in my mind. So I think some someone might say, that's great, helps you feel good to take this long view, right? But meanwhile, you know, the world is burning and um, species are disappearing. Um, but what you're arguing, I think, is really powerful because many people would, would take that point and say, so why just sit around and talk about how you're feeling about it? What are you, what are you doing about it? We're, we're circling back to that now, Paul. Um, and you mentioned the stages of grief and the stages of grief are all about or moving through grief, right? And becoming a new person after you've experienced a loss. 
Um, it raises a question for me, for really all of you, uh, is thinking about ecological loss, climate change, are there stages of grief that might be similar to the stages of grief with the loss of a, a loved one or person? Um, and might those also be world changing in the same sorts of ways? People talk about how they've been changed by losing, you know, someone they love, a person they love. Anybody want to jump in here? I'll just throw it out to all of you. Well, I, I don't know. I've been thinking a lot while, um, while, especially while Leah was reading about this and about how if you think about climate change in terms of mourning or in terms of solastalgia, it allows you to behave in a similar way to how you might behave if you had a loved one who had been given, say, a cancer diagnosis. If you just sat around in anxiety, you would not be helping that person or anyone else in your life or really even yourself to deal with the fact of the matter. Whereas probably, so you probably wouldn't just sit in your apartment, you know, crying or turn away. You would probably focus on giving love to that person and also trying to strengthen the community bonds and family bonds around yourself and around that person. There's a lot of action you would take, in other words, to cope with what is happening and and I think that that, um, that sort of model works very well in specific cases. So for instance, if, you know, if you've got a bird who you know is going to be gone, you can focus your attention on taking action in your, on your land or in your area, or you can focus on whatever you're able to focus on. And I, I love um, a line from Leah's piece about how thinking about the Anthropocene provides you with an opportunity to engage with the line as uh, the unshakable stability of a deeper sense of time and place. And so... Um, I think that there's a little bit of a difference in terms of, you know, these types of grief and that like climate change is not an ending. There's no ending to it. It's not like, you know, there's going to be a point at which this is done, unlike your dying relative, where at a certain point they will be gone and you can go through those stages of grief, uh, you know, you know, in a way that has a sort of maybe a terminus or at least a point where it's going to get better. In this case, it's probably not going to get better. It's probably going to get worse, right, as more and more things disappear. And so developing skills for how to deal with ongoing grief is probably where we are, where what we need to, to be doing. And that probably does just consist of, again, a lot of attentiveness and care, but also community. Because I think one of the main problems we have, going back to Paul's comments early in this um, hour, is that people are alone and they don't have anyone to. And we know that that's not good for grieving a loved one. We know that you need people around you to grieve a loved one, you know. And um, I think a lot of people don't have that community and need to be seeking genuine community and place in order to cope. That's such a great point. You know, it's baked into so many religious traditions that you don't grieve yeah. for a loved one alone, right? But we so yeah. rarely talk about don't grieve for a lost bird or a lost landscape alone, right? It's mm -hmm. really important. Yeah. It's dangerous to do that. Yeah. Yeah. And to build on what Cynthia is saying, too, I think that um, uh, it's, you know, we're I think we're afraid of grieving. We're afraid of, of, of mourning. We're afraid of those things. We I think we're, we're afraid that if we start to mourn, we won't ever stop or we won't ever, you know, be able to get out of it. And I, I just, I, you know, we, we should have more faith in ourselves about that. You know, human beings are able to um, to carry grief and joy, you know, as we all know, as parents and as, as writers, you know, to carry fear and hope, we can, we can do those things at the same time. And I think, um, as Cynthia says, um, going forward, we're really going to need to, um, to, to build those skills as we, as we go, as we go forward in this, um, into the future. 
I think talking about them skills is really important as well. Uh, and Leah, uh, you've used the word practice. That's another way of talking about skills, right? Um, would you like to say anything about that? Well, I mean, I just think, I mean, I just can't agree more with the community aspect of this. And I also, and that's human, but it's also more than human. And, and I think it's, the the very thing that we're mourning is still here <laughs> and that's what's beautiful about the word soul nostalgia paul and um it's here as as a responsibility and a joy and a resource and and we can connect with it and and the beauty one of the great beauties of that is that we can yeah as um as cynthia is pointing out this is different in some ways from mourning the loss of a human but part of what we get stuck in is our little human lifespans you know like we we only have a, a handful of decades um and reconnecting with the greater than human world reminds us that this doesn't end when we end when our individual life ends and it doesn't end spatially where we end either right like that we are connected to something that will not end <laughs> It's huge. Yeah, it is. Absolutely. That expanded sense of time, expanded sense of, of connection and connectedness across generations and across place and geological experience. You're listening to A Public Affair on WORT 89.9 FM. I'm Douglas Haynes, and I'm talking today with writers Paul Bogard, Cynthia Belmont, and Leah Naomi Green about the new book, Soul Nostalgia, an anthology of emotion in a disappearing world. If you have a question or an experience or feeling you'd like to share about living in a time of ecological crisis, give us a call. 608-256-2001, extension 9. There's still time in the hour to hear from you. I think we'll turn to you now, Paul, and your essay, One Path to Soul Nostalgia, also takes up the question of what responsibilities we have to future generations. Leah just used that term responsibility with looking around at the world around us and seeing a responsibility. It's not just about our own life, right? Um, so talk about our, that. We'll, we'll hear about that sense of responsibility to future generations in your piece here. Um, could you read a little bit of One Path to Soul Nostalgia for us? Yeah, I'd be happy to. And this uh, kind of builds off that Leopold quote I mentioned earlier, where he says, uh, an ecologist must either harden his, well, he says, we live alone in a world of wounds, and we, then we have a, a choice, right? We can either uh, make believe the consequences of science are none of our business, or we can be the doctor who sees the marks of death in a community that believes itself well and doesn't want to be told otherwise, right? Politician, policymaker, parent, poet, if every one of us chose to be the doctor in whatever way we know best, what good we could do, what a future we could create. For me, the choice has always been clear. I can't imagine not trying to be the doctor in my own way. And while the feeling of being alone remains, I know I'm not alone. The writers in this book are one proof of that. I think now the question isn't how to avoid feeling alone, but rather how to feel that loneliness while also savoring the joy and wonder still available at every turn. It's a way of being in the world that I've been learning a lot about lately. Almost four years ago, I became a father. My daughter was born during what sometimes seems like the final years of the world I've known, and the changes predicted for her lifetime are overwhelming. 
but I knew this when I chose to become a parent. What I didn't know was how being a father would be better than I could imagine, and my love for my daughter greater than any I have ever felt before. It's this love that I'm thinking of now and the epigraph to a favorite book, Jim Harrison's Dalva. We loved the earth, but could not stay. It works the other way too. We know we cannot stay, but still we love the earth. Or as Solastalgia would tell us, we cannot stay in the world we love for that world is being radically changed by forces beyond our control and still we love. The question for me, the question Solastalgia asks, will be how? What will it mean to love the living world, lake, loons, daughter, and on, when so much of that world is being destroyed? Of this I'm sure, love is the emotion that leads to every other, fear, grief, anger, happiness, joy, hope. It is the emotion to trust and follow as we find our way. We begin with water and sky, or mountains, or desert, or trees. We begin with animals, or birds, or seasons, or the sea. We stand under stars, absorbing their light. We feel the small hand in our own, the bones like those in a bird's wing fanned, the fragility, growing strength, both. Alive now in this turbulent time, we do what we can and do all we can. We remember what was, imagine what could be, and learn to give thanks again and again. Thank you. That's Paul Bogard reading from his essay, One Path to Solastalgia, in the new book, Solastalgia, an Anthology of Emotion in a Disappearing World. There's so much, again, we could talk about there, but I, I feel like your final senses provide such beautiful responses to the question you asked earlier in the passage, which is what will it mean to live, to love the living world when so much of that world is being destroyed? And it's uh, the most apt uh, description, by the way, also I've heard of a child uh, reaching to hold your hand and grabbing your hand before. It's, it's such a, a powerful gesture that it's so hard to capture in words and you do it so well there, Paul. But you end with, we remember what was, imagine what could be as your response to uh, what it means to love or how we love in a world as we watch it being destroyed. I'd love to talk a little bit in our last 10 minutes here about that act of imagining. As writers, what is the role or importance of imagination in navigating ecological crisis? I'll start with you, Paul. I know it's a huge question, but what comes to mind? Yeah, I mean, I think I, you know, it, it, um, where I, what I'm thinking about there is is not only sort of imagining what could be in terms of what we could lose, um, and how we've already talked about how that can be motivating. Like a lot of your listeners, of course, will know about loons, and um, you know, we have my whole piece is about being in northern Minnesota and listening to loons, and the predictions, you know, are that loons will be gone from Minnesota by 2080 and that kind of thing, and that knowledge knowing about it can maybe motivate those of us who love the loons um, to work for them that kind of thing uh, but i also mean when i say imagine what could be i mean imagine the world we could create all the good things we could do you know i think that's one of the deep frustrations for those of us probably here talking today and is that um, not only does not 
engaging with the reality of what's happening and allow and feeling our emotions keep us from um, engaging with the grief of what we're losing. It keeps us from engaging with all the things we could be doing to create uh, a, a better, just um, world. You know, that's such a huge frustration that people, for me, that people are stuck, so afraid, I guess, of, of, of change or of, of what's happening that they lose their ability to engage with the possibilities of what could be, um, which can be really exciting um, to think about as well. Another world is possible, right? Cynthia and Leah, what are your responses to what Paul's saying there about the power of imagination and writers' role in that work of imagining? Well, um, I, I guess I just, I think paralysis is a terrible response to anything. And uh, so, like, it doesn't help with anything. So, yeah, everything in our culture is telling us to be paralyzed. And I think writing or reading, the, the power of the imagination goes exactly in the opposite direction from that. I'm t- thinking of two things, one right now. Right now, The first is um, the book The Road by Cormac McCarthy is, an, I think it's, in a way, an example of soul nostalgia. It's sort of an example of a book that the whole book is soul nostalgia. And it's also imagining, you know, um, a place where everything is gone, where there's nothing left except humans. Um, I think it's very powerful and, you know, has been identified as a critical, most important book of this, of the, of all time, I guess, because of what it can teach us about what we stand to lose if we're not more careful. So um, there's that, but then also just the point of writing the, the reason we write and the reason we read is imagination. That's what it's all about. And what that fundamentally is about is, again, is it a ton of this. So what the writer teaches is how to look and how to see. That's what the writerly eye is fundamentally is an extremely attentive um, view. And so I think the more we read uh, models of other people paying careful attention, the more maybe we can imagine how we can pay careful attention to the things around us. And all of literature supports that mode of being. Thank you, Cynthia. Leah? Yeah, I love that. Um, I love I love everything you all have said today. And I, um, I'm thinking still about the quote that Paul just read that is at the beginning of this gorgeous anthology, um, the Aldo Leopold quote, and the, the part of it that he read about the community, a community that believes itself well, but doesn't want and, and doesn't want to be told otherwise. Um, and just that's such a simple, I mean, let's hear it for Aldo Leopold always, but like, that's such a simple way to say, you know, um, we can only start the healing once we see that healing is necessary. Um, and and I, I love that. I, um, in an ideal world, I, <laughs> I, I would apply that to all relationships, like not just my relationship with the earth, but um, like so much of our human energy, my human energy can be wasted in, in wishing that something would go away <laughs> rather than um, saying, here we are. And, and it, in my experience, that is what allows me to um, to start imagining all that energy that goes towards wishing it weren't the way I'm afraid it is. Once I have some form of acceptance, <laughs> this is happening, this is the way it is, then I'm not in a defensive posture. You know, then I can say, here I am, here we are together. What can we do? 
here we are. What can we do? And um, we're talking about writers doing something, right? And you just mentioned The Road by Cormac McCarthy, Cynthia. I was going to ask at the end of the show here what imaginings you turn to when you're in need of solace or hope. And that is certainly <laughs> not one that I would come to mind when I need solace or hope, because I think it's probably the most devastating book I've ever read. But th- there's a point there that you're making, Cynthia, that's really interesting that um, it makes us accept the possibility of where we could be headed to imagine something different, right? That's kind of the point of a, a dystopia. I don't know if you want to say anything more about that or offer us yet another example of where you turn when you're in need of solace or hope. Sorry. Um, yeah. Uh, yes. I did not mean that as an example of something you would read for, uh, <laughs> for solace or hope, except it does kind of offer the idea um, that things can be okay. Right. The end of that novel we're we believe that the little boy is going to be okay and even though it's focused on just one human being be you know being okay um there's an important component of soul nostalgia i think which is that um you know going back to leah's passage about the depth of time and place that just because some things are changing does not mean that everything is and it's not all happening at the same time and there's so much that's not there's so much of beauty that's still here and that's the road also focuses on that right um and so the sort of throwing up of hands or paralysis idea does not acknowledge the complexity and the depth of time and place and how much there is to love and to care for. Um, I just finished another novel called Open Throat by Henry Hoke that I think is a great example of this as well. It's a novel that's narrated from the perspective of P-22, who was a mountain lion that lived in the Hollywood Hills for a while and who died in 2022, finally, after having been tracked for 10 years. It's an absolutely gorgeous novel. I strongly recommend this. And... Um, it is a feeling, uh, it is a whole book of nostalgia because the mountain lion moving through his incredibly, you know, densely populated urban terrain has seen a lot of disappearance. There's a major disappearance of land during the course of the novel that he has to, that he feels tremendous grief over. And, um, and it offers a portrait of what it means to live in a place that's rapidly changing and that can't be the habitat that you want, you know from a mountain lion's perspective, but reading up on P-22, the result of his life was that all of this change is being made in LA to provide overpasses so that animals can get across the highways and, um, uh, you know, um, foundations have sprung up focused on cougars and the importance of having these charismatic megafauna in our midst and retaining our ecosystemic integrity. And I just think Open Throat as a novel, like I wish everyone would read it because I think it would inspire more action for preserving what we have. You know, LA is hardly a pristine wilderness and yet there's plenty to preserve there as there is plenty to preserve and, and support and connect with everywhere. Yeah, and what a great example or testimony to the human capacity for imagining a different yeah. way to live with our fellow creatures, right? The fact yes. that we might put in a bridge over a highway for an animal to travel over. Mm-hmm. Not to pat ourselves yeah. on the back, but it is, you know, one of the better things about human beings that we are able to imagine other creatures' uh, perspectives. Um, mm-hmm. Paul, Leah, imaginings that you turn to when you need solace or hope? I mean... My go-to is always Thich Nhat Hanh, the Zen um, master. Uh, and he, uh, there's actually, there's a recent book put out by one of his students, um, just published just at the very end of, of Thich Nhat Hanh's life. Um, and the book is called Zen and the Art of Saving the Planet. 
Um, and it's very accessible. It's a book that I teach in my, in my classroom um, and uh, full of very pragmatic ways to, uh, to practice with a lot of this stuff. And Paul, um, I would also, oh, sorry, I would go also, ahead. I just also want to give a quick shout out to Douglas's beautiful essay in this book, um, which is uh, another source of complexity and hope for me. Um, it's called Wild Lessons from Poisoned Water, and that's Douglas Haynes' essay included in the Solastalgia Anthology. <laughs> Thanks for saying that, Leah. Or Leah, it's uh, it's about Starkweather Creek, which folks here in in Madison may know. We're going to have to wrap up here. Paul, I want to give you the last word to tell us about the book Solastalgia, and then I'll uh, bring us on our way. Yeah, well, I would just echo what Leah said about your essay, Douglas. It's really beautiful, and folks in Madison should should definitely check it out. Um, I was going to mention the writing of Margaret Rankle, who writes weekly for the New York Times. I find her columns really, I feel, I don't feel alone when I read her pieces. I feel like she's speaking to me and a friend. Um, and uh, I would also say that it's not reading and writing, but music really seems to help me um, uh, with a lot of these things where I might not be able to bear reading um, open throat uh, as, as you know, for, I don't know if I can bear reading more of that, but I can certainly listen to some amazing salsa music that will lift my spirits here. So, and just want to say thank you before we go to Leah again and Cynthia and you, Douglas, for being part of the book, Soul Nostalgia. It was my pleasure to put it together. Well, thank you, Paul. And thank you all for being with me today. It's been a real privilege to talk with you all. You've been listening to A Public Affair. I'm your Monday host, Douglas Haynes, and I've been talking today with three contributors to the new book, Solastalgia, an Anthology of Emotion in a Disappearing World. Cynthia Belmont, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure. And Leah Naomi Green, thanks so much, Leah. What a delight. Thank you. And Paul Bogard. Thank you, Paul. Thanks, Douglas. Thank you. And I'd also like to thank today's engineer, Andrew Thomas, producer Jade Isiri Ramos, and news director Sholly Pittman. And thank you, listeners, for joining us today on A Public Affair here at WRT 89.9 FM, Madison. Stay tuned for Madison Bookbeat. On today's show, host Cole Erickson talks with Wisconsin writer Steve Fox about his short story collection, Sometimes Creek. <laughs>